welcome. And um, today I've been joined by John Manning. And uh, John and I go back a, a little bit because John's uh, real um, interest is in pricing. In fact, your whole career is, uh, is or focus is pricing, isn't it? It is. And I, I've recently, I've done a few podcasts recently, and I've actually stopped talking about the roles I've had and actually looked at my career as a journey through various pricing models. Mm. So I actually started out in the with the NFI pricing model, which was in the oil industry. I don't know where the prices came from. They still don't know where the prices came from, hence NFI. I then went and worked in cost plus pricing at ANSET, pricing um, catering for international airlines that would pick mm-hmm. up catering from seven flight kitchens around Australia. And now you're a founder of Pricing Profits and Sompre. So yes. you're consulting now to all sorts of companies around pricing strategies and yeah. pricing models, yeah? Primarily value-based, yeah. So there's been a couple of other pricing models back there in the yeah. on the journey, but it's primarily all about value-based these days, the, you know, the sustainable pricing model. Well, and, and that's of interest to me because um, one of the things that I've noticed in marketing, and marketing they used to talk about the four Ps, apart from promotion, which was the advertising part of my career, um, pricing is one of the four Ps. And yet I often get the feeling that it's an under-considered or undercooked area of the marketing mix. It is, and it's commonly known as the forgotten P, um, of, you know, the four Ps or the seven Ps, whichever school. So that's the to. one that's running down your leg. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just had to throw that in. But I, I don't know why that is. I think, you know, sometimes, you know, people that have gone into marketing like the sexy side of awards and advertising, advertising campaigns and, you know, they're all extroverts and so forth. But, um, you know, the pricing side has got these things called numbers attached to it. And, you know, sometimes people struggle with numbers, particularly if you're sort of that artistic, creative type person. Well, John, it's uh, it's certainly the accountable, and I mean accountable oh, part of marketing because yeah. pricing will ultimately have an impact on revenue, but also on margin, won't it? Well, wasn't it Kotler that said that um, price is the only one of the four P's of marketing that produces revenue, the other three generate costs. (laughs) Well, that's one way of looking at it. I'm sure the marketing industry doesn't see it that way. And the brand equity calculators there. (laughs) Of course, yeah, yeah. So why do you think it is uh, sort of the forgotten P? It's it's perplexing. You know, I think some of it is, you know, it's all about numbers. It's, you know, that thing called price elasticity that might have done in Economics 101 or Marketing mm. 101, and I didn't really like that stuff. Um, is It's, you know, a lot of people say there's a science to pricing, but it's it's an art. You know, it's you're dealing with people's behaviour. If, if it was a science, you would be able to predict predict the price that a Van Gogh sells for at an auction. Yeah. And, and you but can't. you can't because there's an emotional... It's, it's an art. It's an emotional... Well, that, that raises the question of, obviously, in your uh, field of expertise, uh, behavioural economics has had a huge impact because that, it's really the study of trying to understand that those emotional um, decision-making processes. Absolutely. And it just supports the hypothesis that, um, you know, it, it is an art rather than a science. You know, they call economics in general, the dismal science and so forth. But, you know, it's still got to be replicable and, um, you know, with experiments and so forth. You'd know that from your background. But 
Um, it's that's not always the case. Because uh, Dan Early uh, called it uh, predictably irrational. You know that human beings are irrational. But the great thing about it is there is a level of predictability in that. And and he uses some examples of of pricing Absolutely. as a way of framing value for people. Um, can you talk to some of those you know, considerations? Or well, I think the the one that sort of has become behavioural economics folklore is the the famous or infamous economist pricing experiment. So apparently Dan Ariely went onto the subscription page of The Economist one day and there was an option for a digital-only subscription, a print-only subscription, or print and digital. Um, and I can't remember exactly what the price points were. Uh, they were the same for the print and digital as and it was digital, for print. Digital-only, yeah, or print-only, yeah. yeah. Um, so he, he then ran out the economist and said, what are you doing here? And nobody would, would sort of take the call or answer these questions and so forth. So he ran a similar experiment with a, a group of students. Uh, and the outcome, the, sec the second part of the experiment involved removing what has become thought of as the decoy product. And yes, that, yeah, yeah. Um, and the revenue, it, it's really interesting. So he, he actually shares market share results. So the percentage yeah. of the students that would take up the option based on what they saw. The interesting thing is then to actually to work out what revenue impact that might have. And nobody's really looked at that, but I did it once. So I actually, the economists don't break out their online subscribers and their print subscribers, but I found a total subscriber number and just made some assumptions. And based on the prices that were in the research, the revenue was about 30% higher with the decoy product. Yeah. And, and the argument is that that allows people to frame value. Absolutely. You know, because the, the pricing is relative. Yeah, the um, the teas made. You know that that sort of, it seems to me archaic. But the idea of having an alarm clock that makes tea for you, and they had it. It was like three hundred and ninety five dollars. And he he said to them, "Can you add some extra functionality, and we'll put it in at a slightly higher price?" And sales went through the roof because people couldn't come at buy, spending four hundred dollars on a teas made because they had nothing in America to relate it to. By having a slightly higher priced one, suddenly they had that framing, that value comparison that allows absolutely, them to buy. Absolutely. And you see decoys everywhere. You know, there's uh, there's Norma's um, restaurant in New York, which has the $1,000... Uh, hamburger? Hamburger? Uh, no? Omelette. Omelette. Caviar oh, yes, omelette. Caviar omelette. And it has underneath it, we dare you to expense this. Yeah. But there's also the $100 one. The $100 one sells really well yeah. because that's the $1,000 one is the decoy for it. So I've seen pricing models in this country especially where the price is basically set by the, what the competitors are charging. <laughs> Yes, the old uh, the old chestnut of what the market will bear. Exactly, or, that's it. That's the justification. That's what everyone else is paying. So that's what we're going to do. Yeah, and I I've got a couple of comments on that. So it's not what the market will bear. Somewhere behind the scenes, someone like me is setting a price. It's mm -hmm. like the invisible hand. There's no such thing as invisible hand. A Adam Smith only mentioned once in the Wealth of Nations. But there's no invisible hand. There's no market. There is actually somebody who says, I'm going to charge that price. So that would be the, the, the first thing I would say about that. The second thing is that there, there's a couple of rules around pricing. The first one is that all value is subjective. Yep. You, whatever you buy, Absolutely. you determine the value. The second rule is that all value is contextual. 
What that means is that if you put the right context around your prices, the right pricing communication strategy, the messaging and so forth, you can charge premium prices. Mm-hmm. But if you if you don't wrap any value story or you know premium positioning and so forth around your around your product, you'll be playing in the the commodity end of the market. Yeah, absolutely. Because you need to give people some justification. Absolutely. To actually reinforce their emotional decision with a rational, you know, a rational approach. Or just, I mean, you take bottled water. You know, it's mm. the most amazing, <laughs> the amazing product, isn't it? But you see it at the airport, and it is five dollars a bottle. You see it in Coles and Woolies, or it's a dollar a bottle. It's a dollar a bottle. It's mm. what? What? It's the same bottle. It's the same temperature. What's changed? Yeah. Well, the context in which you're buying yeah. it. So um, one of the areas I'm interested in being in professional services as a consultant is the whole thing around where you get to pricing around selling your IP experience, but largely people want to reduce it down to their time, whether it's the buyer that's doing that or the seller, but it comes down to these uh, this idea of hourly rates seems to be the way that people price professional services. And I think, you know, we, we see that in a lot of industries and I think that it's the, the, there's pressure coming up from the customer to say to these professional service firms, you know what, I'm not buying your time. You know, I don't, um, when I go and buy my latest Toyota or Holden or Ford and so forth, I don't ask for the timesheet. Mm. Um, so... Why are you charging me for for your time? And I'm so buying much? an outcome, aren't I? I'm buying a deli- solving a problem or delivering a particular thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think you know there you know these there, there's a legacy of this pricing model in you know advertising, in accounting, in law, and so forth. Um, it is slowly starting to change um, from pricing the inputs to actually provide pricing the outputs. And <clears> you and I both know that Coca Cola and P and G moved towards value-based compensation in yep. their advertising in around 2009, 2010. And, and yet, because uh, we don't work on an hourly basis, we work on a project fee. We scope the project and we give a price. But when we deal with procurement people, they constantly want us to give an hourly rate. And the conversation goes like this, what's your hourly rate? And I said, well, we've given you a fixed price. So it could be, depending on the number of hours we do, it could be $10 an hour, if I've hopelessly misjudged this, or it could be $10,000 an hour if I can solve this problem for you very quickly. What's your point? Yeah. And they go, well, I can't compare one to the other. Because they're sitting in front of a spreadsheet and they've got vendor one, vendor two, vendor three, and the bottom line is hourly rate. And they're sort of trying to get to a point where they can make a decision based on price. I did some work with a law firm a while back and they had exactly this problem. There was a, a piece of work that needed to be done for a Chinese buyer and they they don't do um pricing by the hour. They only do fixed value-based pricing yeah. and they don't even record on timesheets and so forth. And in the end, the, the the Chinese buyer said, you know what? I can't cope. I can't cope. You can't I don't give know me what I'm buying. But you know what? That was not the customer they sort of, the kind of customer yeah, they that wanted. Yeah, that they want. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, you know, good on them for saying, not my type of customer. Yeah, that's right. Because if, if as soon as you reduce it down to an hourly rate, it's You're comparable then, to everyone in the market. 
Yeah, and it then becomes depending on your level of commoditization. And this is, you mentioned advertising, because the thing that advertising agencies always complain to me is why can't we get $650 an hour for our senior people when a partner in a law firm gets $650? And I say to them, because the buyer in that case perceives that the lawyer partner in the law firm has, one, done a educational standard to understand a complex issue same with an accountant you mm -hmm. know and and you'll pay for more complex accounting you'll pay those higher fees whereas you know advertising any anyone any you know the perception is any fool could do it so it does isn't that one of the things that commoditizes the hourly rate in some some professions com compared to others lemmings don't innovate <laughs> you know, if, if everybody charges by the hour, everybody's just going to go, well, look, they're charging that rate, we'll charge that rate. Yeah. And so forth. This, I, you know, in preparation for this discussion, I looked up, um, there was a survey conducted by the American Association of Advertising Agencies a couple, couple of years ago, and they discovered that 98% of um, agencies track their job estimates, 94% yep. track the labour hours and costs associated with their projects, but only 22% tracked their clients' business results. And I'm not surprised. I think the 22% is probably overestimated. <laughs> well, they're American numbers, so yeah. yeah, absolutely. But, you know, these businesses, and it's the same with accountants. Accountants have one-on-one -on -one conversations with their clients. They can do one-on-one -on -one pricing, which for yeah. many is marketing nirvana. Um, and, you know, they, if they can see business results, they can price on the basis of business results. Absolutely. You know, in a B2B world, value is – there's three sources of value. You increase your client's revenue, you reduce their costs, or you minimise their risk. Mm. All three are quantifiable in accounting or economic terms. Now, it's interesting you say uh, reduce their costs because I, I just want to share with you a story. I, a very large advertiser in China phoned me up and said, uh, could you help us? We want to look at our media agency's fees. And I said, okay, well, we could certainly help you with that. Well, what what's it going to cost us? And I said, well, um, we have a fixed price model for that, you know, and, and I gave them the price. And they said, oh, your competitor has said that they'll save us 10% of what we're paying now and we'll pay them half of what they save. And I went, really? You're willing to do that? And they said, yes. And I said, I will save you 100% of what you're currently paying if I can have half of it. And they, the procurement people on the phone got very excited and they said, oh, well, that'd be great. And I said, no, I won't. You know, isn't that the danger, especially with that focus? I mean, I understand reducing waste and improving efficiencies, but a single-minded focus on price in the, or cost in that case without an understanding of the quality means that you're no, it's two it's, yeah. it's it's one dimensional isn't it absolutely and you know there there are a range of alternative models out there relative to pricing by the hour and it really it comes down to a question of how well do you back yourself mm. you know do you back yourself better than that that competitor that the client was talking to or are they backing themselves better and the the discussion moves actually away from charging by the hour to what's that percentage of my that I'm going to take as my price do you know mm. do I take 100% do I, you know for some companies 10% can be a you know a gold mine oh absolutely if i got paid 10% of everything i saved 
I wouldn't be doing this job anymore. <laughs> but Look, because yeah. I made a philosophical decision to do a fixed fee, you know, we, we recently did a regional um, review of agency fees. The client came back and said we saved $12 million. Now, our fee for that was about 45000 so as a ROI, it's off the scale. But if I had have gone for 10%, that's $1.2 yeah. million. I'd be like, okay, I'm finished <laughs> finished for this month. And it really is interesting because, you know, as I started off saying to you, pricing seems to be so under-considered and yet it has such a profound impact oh, on businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it leaves me speechless as to sort of how neglectful companies can be on pricing. I walked into a I walked into a workshop one day, a company, a manufacturing company out in uh, in Glen Waverley here, industrial heartland of Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and sort of sat down. I had a you know CEO, CFO, CMO, and so forth in the room. And so one of the first questions I said was, "When did you last change your prices?" And they all looked around at each other and said, 17 years ago." Hmm. 17 years. Yeah. Well, CPI's been going at about 3% yeah. compounded over 17 years. Well, That's a yeah. significant increase, yeah. isn't it? But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, customers don't care what your costs are. They care what your value are. Yeah. So in many ways, CPI is irrelevant. Anybody who yeah, is on the basis of costs and CPI is, is actually missing the point. The drivers of price changes should be structural changes in your industry, new competitors coming in, new yep. products being launched, the value proposition changing. The best way to increase your price is to increase your value and so forth. Nothing to do with costs. Well, except CPI is used to work out the cost of something in real terms over a period of time yeah. because money, what is it, money doubles every 10 years. So, yeah, you know, yeah. um, the ability to buy. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that uh, I, I raised earlier was about pricing in advertising, so we will cover that, is ha what is the role from your perspective of pricing in advertising? I, it's a, That's a really good question. So I think advertising... There's a role for advertising in pricing and there's a role for pricing in advertising. So when you advertise a price, it actually makes a statement of what the vendor thinks this is worth. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that aligns with the perceived value from the buyer's perspective. That expression of a price can also be an expression of quality. Mm -hmm. So particularly for new revolutionary products for which there's no point of reference in the market at all, a high price is going to be associated with a quality product rather than a, you know, a, a cheap price. Which product. is where luxury goods, you do absolutely, quite a bit of work absolutely. in China, you know, luxury goods in a country that, uh, you know, will commoditize almost anything, yeah. they will spend $5,000 on a handbag. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Um, but then you, you can, sometimes you can have advertising without pricing. Now, I think it was Rolls-Royce that said, if you have to ask the price, you can't afford it. Yeah, yeah. So it, it moves in funny circles. Makes it elitist. Yeah, and, you know, another another company strapline that I love is the John Lewis partnership in the UK, never knowingly undersold. Mm. You know, that, and that was invented by one of the, the founders in the 1930s. Um, what does that say? Does that say they're cheap? Does it say they're top end of the market, it doesn't really matter. It works across. Yeah, it's competitive. They're competitive. Divide. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, the, but you also have, you know, I think the, the strictly the purest form of value-based pricing is a pay-what-you-want pricing model. 
Yeah, now that's interesting, yeah? So I didn't realise this, and I only realised it from listening to another podcast a couple of days ago. John Bon Jovi has a pay-what-you-want restaurant in New Jersey. Oh, okay. Um, you go in and have the meal, and then at the end of it, you pay yeah, what you very, think it's yes, worth. Yeah, so we've had, we've had lentil as anything here in Melbourne for years and years and years. It's a pay-what-you-want restaurant. And recently, they had a whole lot of people march in there and pay $2 or, or not a penny and so forth and they had to cop that the interesting thing about john bon jovi's restaurant is you pay what you want for the meal but if you can't pay you spend an hour doing the dishes oh okay that's fantastic absolutely and it's it's positioned as a soul kitchen um as a place where you know the less well off can can actually get something good to eat so i've actually heard though that typically when you introduce that model the average price per customer or of you know goes up I've heard that too. I, I've heard that there are... That's of, anecdotally. I haven't, yes. I haven't had it proven anywhere. Yeah, I've heard that as well. So um, people that run a pay-what-you-want restaurant have also had a fixed-price restaurant, and yep. the pay-what-you-want generally has higher revenue than the, the non-one. Because in another application of that, um, I remember reading uh, Maverick, the um, the book about uh, you know, running businesses like people are adults, where they actually allowed people to decide in a very open environment what their salary would be. And that he said average salary increases were less under that model yeah. than they were when management offered so management would still doubt budget for what they would were willing to pay people but when they said to people well what do you think your salary would be it would typically be lower and this is not just women this is not women so it's not an issue about uneven pricing it was typically people would set their salaries lower than what management was willing to pay. And that's them. really interesting because, you know, we were just talking about behavioural economics. So one of the behavioural economics findings is this thing called the endowment effect where if you're selling your house, you will tend to value it a lot more than what everyone else will yeah. value it. It's called the endowment effect or a car mm-hmm. and so forth like that. That's interesting that that those findings have been discovered with salaries compared to, yeah. you know, more tangible assets. Yeah. So um, one of the other, speaking of uh, behavioural economics, one of the things that I'm really interested in, and again, it's um, it's Dan Airely raised it, is the idea of the way money impacts people's behaviour. So the first experiment he did was he got his students in and he said to the first group, I'll p- it gave them a task to do, I'll pay you $5, work as long as you think that's worth. And the second group, he said, I'll pay you 50 cents, work as long as you think it's worth. And then he said to the third group, I'll give you a chocolate bar. And what he found was that the 50 cent group worked about half the time of the $5 group, not a tenth of the time. But the chocolate bar worked the longest amount of time. And the hypothesis is this idea of social contracts that are messed up by financial contracts or you know, introduction yeah. of money. So, John, you know, could you come over to my place on Saturday and help me move some furniture? You come over, we spend an hour doing it. If I gave you $20 for doing it, how would you feel compared to if I gave you a bottle of wine that was worth about $20? Yeah, interesting stuff, isn't it? Because I, money, to, uh, he says, money distorts perceptions of value money changes the idea of what's worth you know valuable to someone 
Uh, yeah, and I was recently reading um, along a similar point that if you asked someone, um, if someone valued at something at $10, they wouldn't necessarily value it twice as much at $20. No. It actually needs to go up to $40. It's like a non-linear scale. Exponential, it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, to go up to $40 for them to, to double the... Um, that so, will be effect. So this is a, this is a mechanism that I think is at work in advertising agencies and the way they work with their clients, because for a long time on the media commission they never talked about being paid because it was just commission taken. So they would have these very deep personal relationships, you know, and you would often hear and still do of agency people, you know, regularly going out socially with their clients and, and you know, sharing a personal relationship where money was never considered. I wonder if the, you know, the, the, the virtual equivalent of that is the freemium model. So, you know, oh, yeah. you've, you've got your, your, the people on LinkedIn who are not paying for it are the, the chocolate yeah. consumers and so forth because, you know, 75% of people on LinkedIn don't pay for it, but 25% do. They're the people that are paying the, the 50 cents and the $5 yeah. and so forth. Yeah, well, I think uh, software um, developers have known that for a long time. Give people a cut-down version yeah. for free, Take out a some freemium, yeah. and then just keep adding it in, offering to upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. And the very first step has to be non-painful at all it Absolutely. has to be a very small step and then the pricing steps increase a lot as you move along from that yeah so i'm thinking in advertising that uh you know there was a time where the account management person never you know had to worry about asking their client to pay for something because it was automatically paid in the background through the media commission but now if a client asks for something they have to sit there with their calculator working out how many hours that's going to take and the rate per hour that they need to recoup to be able to get paid for it and how that totally changes the relationship. Mm. So it sounds a bit like the, you know, what we've seen in the aviation industry where you used to buy a ticket and it mm. had your seat in it and it had your meal in it and had your entertainment in it and it's all now being busted out and unbundled yeah. and so forth. And, you know, um, guys in the airlines in the US make 40% of their revenue from these ancillary revenue streams oh. that have been busted out of that all-inclusive I experienced box. that um, just recently with Scoot. I, had, okay. I, I ended up flying with Scoot. And uh, it was interesting because it was like, well, here's the ticket. And now if you want entertainment and you'd like to upgrade the food, uh, there's the standard package or the premium package. And you know, and they just had this, oh, in, uh, internet access. Was that on the plane or was on that... The plane, on the plane. So, I bought took up tickets on Jetstar a couple of weeks ago. I Within five minutes, I found what I wanted, but it took me another 25 minutes. Oh, to, to go through all the options? Yes. <laughs> just take me to the payment and did page, you, please. And did you ex select any of them, though? No. Did it work on no, you? you? I didn't just want carbon offset. I didn't want a car. I didn't want a hotel. I didn't want the ability. Oh, yes, yeah. It just went on and on. Yeah. <laughs> and look, you know, and, and I think that's one of the issues is that uh, when we talk more and more about customer experience, that perhaps the pricing isn't being considered as part of the customer experience, and it should be. Oh, absolutely, and you know, I'm I'm a, you know, I'm a big advocate of why not pricing. So mm -hmm. you're you're going back to the airport this afternoon. You, you you have the radio on in the taxi or something, and you hear a song you like, and you go, I'd love that on my iPhone. It's a dollar sixty nine. Push the button. Why not buy it? Mm -hmm. It's so easy to do it, and so forth. And I think, you know. 
as great as Apple are, there's a, you know, a lot of people can learn from that sort of simple why-not approach to pricing. Make it easy for customers to buy and buy frequently, whether it's transactional or on a subscription model. Um, you know, there are some people that just try and monetize every little nook and cranny in their business models and so forth. But it leads to fatigue, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the resources involved in closing a sale and um, things like that. So if you're giving advice, and, and this is something I get asked all the time, uh, agencies say, well, if we're not using the head hour pricing model, what should we use? What are some, what are some alternatives that you think professional services, advertising agencies, that type of thing should be looking at as a future pricing model? I think you know, one, of the, one of the things I tell a lot of people to do is to jump onto Google and search the term 77 inspirational pricing pages. Okay. And you end up on this website, and I, I tell them to do that because I can't remember what the website's name is, but you see, as you can imagine, 77 different pricing pages from various websites, and some of them are so out of date now, it's not funny. But you see all these packages that people have built and how the packages specify which features come in which packages. Sometimes the most expensive is on the left, sometimes it's on the right, sometimes the most popular is highlighted and so forth, but it's just a great little resource on how people are you know, presenting their pricing and so forth. So I think you know, one of the first things I would recommend is putting three options in front of a customer. So um, you know, if you're doing a pitch, there's a small version, a medium version, and a large version. Because if you put one version in front of a customer, you've got a 50-50 chance of closing the deal. Mm-hmm. You put two in front of a customer, you force them to make a price-based decision. Mm-hmm. You put three options in front of a customer, one can be a decoy, you force them to go, which one do I buy, not do I buy, and you force them to make a value-based decision. Yeah, because the other thing with one, especially in a pitch, is that they're going to be making their own selection of choices, which is your competitors as well, Absolutely. aren't they? Absolutely. They'll automate, if you only give one price, they'll start comparing to what else is on the table. I've even heard of an extreme case where someone's gone, thank you, we don't actually need any more quotes because one company has given us three quotes. We're required to get three quotes. They've all come from one company. Fine, mm-hmm. let's pick one of these. So I think those approaches to packaging um, would be one thing I would look at. Um, play to your strengths, back yourself. If you know that you can deliver um, results, either say uh, efficiencies or increased revenue. Ab- yeah. yeah, absolutely. Back yourself. And I, I would always recommend don't try and boil the ocean. So don't do a 100% backing myself up front. You know, put 50% of you. You know, 50% is a fixed price and the other fixed 50% is performance-based. Yep. Don't do it with every single client. Do it with one client or one mm. practice area and so forth and start small. Make these mistakes on one client and then, you know, fix it, you know, do an analysis afterwards, what went wrong, what went right and so forth, and then, you know, take it from there. Well, that's fantastic advice. Thank you, John. My pleasure, Thanks Dave. for your time. Um, it's been good to catch up. Uh, One last question. What do you charge an hour?